There's an outline. Hopefully, you've received one of those. And if you want to keep your Bibles open to Psalm 143. Psalm 143 is one of seven special or particular psalms in the book of, of Psalms. And these special psalms, these particular psalms, confront and wrestle with the reality of sin in our lives. These seven psalms are sometimes called the penitentiary psalms. Psalms of repentance. The Psalm 6, 32, 38, 51. It's quite a famous one. Psalm 102, 113. And the one that we have before us, Psalm 143. I've chosen this penitentiary psalm such that it might help orientate us as a church as we begin a year together. I know the year's already started, but I've been on leave for two weeks and um, nothing much happens in January. It's it's really when Australia Day comes that you know the holidays are over. I've chosen this psalm because, in actual fact, what this psalm does is help us consider the most important problem that we will face this year. As the year is ahead of us, no doubt you've been thinking of the things that you have to do and there may be problems that have already arisen that you haven't considered. And you know that from past experience there'll be many more. But Psalm 143 helps us see what's most important for us to consider as we consider the year before us. And this psalm is so helpful because what it does is it urges us, in fact, more than just urge us, it kind of forces us to place our hope in God's righteousness and not our own. In God and not ourselves. Have a look at verse 3. Because David had many problems. David had a lot of problems that faced him. There in verse 3 we see that the enemy is pursuing him. He crushes me, David says, to the ground. He makes me dwell in darkness like those who are dead. We don't know exactly the situation that David is in. It's most likely that he's being pursued by King Saul. We uh, hear of this in 1 Samuel, but it's not exactly clear. In fact, there's, I think, a deliberate vagueness in this psalm about what is happening to David. And it's deliberately vague because this psalm is not just intended for David and his problems, but it's intended for us and our problems, the things that we will face This year, David is pleading before God as he feels closed in and encircled. And I think, although we may not be able to relate to the the military context of having an enemy encircle us, we can relate to David's plea here. We can relate to struggling with depression We can relate to being forced out of a job. We can relate to broken relationships. We can relate to the grief that death brings. We can relate to the foreboding fear of our wellness and 
well-being. These are things that we will face, many of us will face this year. And we face them because we too have an enemy, an evil one who oppresses us and reduces us to the kind of feelings of verse 3. Have a look there again at verse 3. See, David is alive, but he feels barely alive. He's like the walking dead, verse 3, like those who are dead. And as we face problems, barriers, uncertainty, difficulties, this psalm is so helpful to us because it shifts us from what is our natural and often direction that, we're, that we, we head into as we face problems. You see, often when we face difficulty and problem in life, when we feel like David feels in verse 3, we think it's just unfair. It's unjust. Many of the things that happen to us. And what we do is we like to take comfort and draw strength in the fact that we are right. And we think often that whatever is occurring in our life, we don't deserve this. And so what we do is we calculate up in our minds all the things that we have done and we figure that in that kind of formula, with that kind of calculation, things should go a lot better for us. Bible speaks about this kind of response to problems as standing in our own righteousness. You know, why should I be facing this now? Why should I be facing people who seem to treat me so meanly when I'm so generous? I believed in the Bible. I believed in the Bible for so long. Why would God make me feel so alone. This is what David is facing and he's uncomfortable by the reality of the enemies that are around him but there's one thing that he's even more comfortable, uncomfortable about. It's there in verse 2. He says, Do not bring your servant into judgment for no one living is righteous before you. See, David in the midst of his discomfort of the enemies surrounding him, he doesn't make things easier for himself. He doesn't try and kind of um, you know, conjure up a list of all the attributes uh, and all the positive aspects of his life and his contribution to his life. No, he faces a very uncomfortable reality there in verse 2. For no one living is righteous before you. See what David is saying? He's saying, if, if, God, if you were to make an assessment of my life, I would not be righteous before you. And that's the same for us. If God were to now make an assessment of each and every one of our lives, of the secrets of our hearts, of our attitudes, let alone our actions and our words, we fall short of him in some way, all the time. Not in every way all the time, we don't fall short in every way all the time, but in some way, we fall short of God 
all the time, in many ways, more than we care to admit. And verse 2 is a bold confrontation of the truth. Do you see the Bible doesn't smooth out the reality of who we are? There's no photoshopping us to make us look nicer before God. No one is righteous before you. This is the harsh reality that David faces. And this is what he faces in the very harsh of circumstances. And this is not what we normally do. We normally, in our inner thoughts, try and tell ourselves, well, we're basically good, we're not too bad. But this psalm is a real warning to us. If that's our response to life's circumstances, that's not a secure place. And you know why? Because it's not a plead for mercy. Telling ourselves how good we are and listing up all the things that we have done is standing on our own righteousness. And that's not where David goes in this psalm. Have a look in verse 1. It's not him standing on what he has done. It's not an appeal to his righteousness. No, verse 1 is a plea for mercy. O Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy in your faithfulness and righteousness. Come to my relief. It's not a prayer that he might be strengthened and that he might be better than he already is. It's a desperate plea for God to intervene in his life. It's a plea for mercy. It's a plea even that he knows he doesn't deserve. But he prays it because he knows God's promises. He knows the God that has promised to bind himself to his people, promised to love them and overcome their sin, to wash away their failures, to give them a fresh start even before they cried out with words of mercy. He's heard their heart and he's poured out his forgiveness upon his people. This is the God that David knows. This is the God who has promised to be with his people. The God who has delivered his people out from Egypt, brought them to the promised land and has said that he will be their king. He has bound and joined himself to his people. He's glued them with the promise of his covenant. And we too, as Christian people, we have been glued, joined to God because of the promises that he has fulfilled here in the Old Testament and the way that they have come about in the Lord Jesus. See, what David only knew in shadow, we know, not in a shadow, but in a person, in the Lord Jesus, that our sin has been perfectly and completely dealt with. This is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. This is why we celebrate Holy Communion, because we see afresh in this wine and in this bread the reality of our forgiveness. We don't just speak about our forgiveness. In Holy Communion, we see our forgiveness in the bread and in the wine as they point to the Lord Jesus. And we people who sin know that in the Lord Jesus, God remarkably and wonderfully is absolutely just and right in forgiving us who don't deserve it. He has loved us 
And David is reminded of God's love in this time. There in verse 8, he speaks of hearing of God's steadfast love. That The word steadfast there is related to the idea of his promised faithful love the way in which God promised and continues to deliver on those promises. This is not merely an emotional idea of love. This is a hard reality in the very grittiness of life. Let that love come when? Come in the morning. We need to hear of God's love and his forgiveness how often, as often as we sleep. We need to reset our minds. This psalm, I think he's reminding us, every day we need to hear of his love in the morning. And as we do that, I think it'll look like three things. As we run into problems, but as we, like David, rest not in ourselves and in telling ourselves how good we are, our righteousness, but as we rest on his righteousness his forgiveness and his love that we've been given in the Lord Jesus, it will look like three things. And that's the second point in your outline. Our lives lived in his righteousness. If we're living before him, if we know his love, it will mean these three things. Firstly, we'll look to his work and not ours. We'll be looking to all that God has done. We'll be asking that that fill our vision rather than things that I can do, that I have done, or perhaps even worse, that I should do. Um, I don't know if you're a lists kind of person who makes lists everywhere. Lists about lists, anyone? Yes? They're often to-do lists, aren't they? Things that we need to get done. But what if we were, before we made all the lists of things that we were to do, what if we were to make a list, not for ourselves, but a list of what God has done, a have-done list for him? That's what David does there in verse 5. He says, I will remember the days of long ago. I will meditate on all of your works and consider what your hands have done. He's saying he wants to be reminded of what God has done in saving him in the past. In preserving his life, he knows. And we see throughout the Psalms, this is not the only Psalm where he's surrounded by enemies. I can't believe how many Psalms where his enemies are always surrounding him. God has preserved him in the past. And he can trust that God will preserve him in the future. But he needs to meditate on that reality. It doesn't come naturally to him. Here is a man whose song comes naturally to him. He plays the harp so beautifully. He's built to do that. But he, like any human person, is not built to trust in the steadfast love of God each morning. No one's built like that. We're not hardwired to know God's love, to think of it every day. We're not sprung-loaded towards God. We're sprung-loaded away from him. And so we need to meditate. We need to ponder. Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, writes this, Many see God's world, but few look at it. What Henry is saying there is you can go through life and you can see exactly the same thing. But for those who consider who God is and what they've done and what he's done in their lives, you see the hand of God in everything. 
any and every moment of your life. And this doesn't come naturally. It requires what the Bible talks about as meditation. Now, meditation uh, is quite a popular idea uh, at the moment. But the kind of meditation that's popular in our world is not necessarily, or not really like the meditation the Bible's speaking of here. Meditation in the Bible is not to empty your mind. Meditation in the Bible is to fill it. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this concept of mindfulness. Put your hand up if you've heard of mindfulness. It's a new secular version, I think, of Eastern meditation. And I think, in one sense, it's quite helpful. It's quite helpful because there is a sense in which we need to be still and we need to, in fact, empty our minds out of all the junk and all the things that come into it. We need to practice that kind of stillness. Our world, our lives are filled with all this stuff coming into them. We do need to move and push out and find a stillness amidst all the things that go on in our lives. But vacancy in Christian meditation is not the goal. A clear and fresh grasp of, in this psalm, what his hands have done. I love that phrase, what his hands have done in this world. His hands in our lives. We need to consider that. Uh, In Psalm 46, it says, be still. You know, you could put that up as a big mindfulness poster. Be still. Look, it's in the Bible. But how do we be still? Psalm 46, be still and know that know that I am God. Where there's rafah, peace. We find that peace, that stillness, not by emptiness, but by knowing that he is God. That takes time, it takes emotional energy, and often we're so busy and exhausted, it's hard for us to do this, but often we are so busy and exhausted because we haven't done it. We dull ourselves so often from hearing of God's word. We dull ourselves in the fantasy of other people's lives, portrayed to us on screens, in cinema, in books, and where we seek rest, and we seek those things because we seek rescue from the drudgery of the reality of our own lives, and we long for this alternative world. That's what happens for us. We long for an alternative world. And so what that does is dull us to the reality of what God is doing, but if we can see what God is doing, we start to long, not for an alternate world, we start to long for what the Bible says is a new world one that he is working and one that he is taking us home to. We need to tune our hearts to sing, but we can only do this if we create a space to do it. Secondly, we need to... Well, the second way in which we'll live, not in our own righteousness this year, the second way we'll do that is to long for God himself, not merely the benefits of what he might bring. King David there in verses 6 and 7 is passionately seeking after God. He's facing these enemies. They're encircling him. They're all around him. He's feeling like a dead man walking. But the surprising thing is the essence of what he's asking for is not to be rescued from these enemies that encircle him. There in verses 6 and 7, he says, 
I spread out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Do not hide your face from me. See, his greatest fear is that God would hide himself. His greatest fear is not that his enemies would be victorious. His greatest fear is that God would hide himself. And so he stretches out his hands there in verse 6. There's this physical display of this spiritual reality. I think this is very helpful for us in the modern world because what we've done is kind of detach ourselves, uh, our mind and our body exist in two different realms. But in the Psalms, the mind and the body, the heart, mind and body all are all one. And so here, as David longs for God, he longs with his arms, with his hands. Because we're not simply brains in jars. And we've been given hands and arms. And sometimes it is appropriate and right and inevitable that we would express our deepest desires of prayer and song with our hands. Or to kneel as we pray in this expression of reverence and submission. So we need to ask ourselves, will we long, not just for what God might give us, but will we long for him this year? Will we long for him if our health, if our comfort, if our perceived happiness isn't forthcoming? Can we come and say to God, I want you for who you are. You are worthy in and of yourself of all of my praise, all of my devotion. And if you do good in my life, I will praise you. But should you choose to remove earthly benefits that I long for, yet I will praise you still. The third aspect of the expression of living in his righteousness and not our own is that we would long for our growth in relationship with God. Verse 9 is striking as David prays for delivery from his enemies. There is clearly a danger he is faced with with here in this psalm, but he hopes for more than that. He hopes and he asks that God might do a greater thing in his life than simply rescue him from a tricky position, from a hard spot, from a problem that he faces. He he doesn't want to just get over the bump of what's right before him. He wants something more. Verse 10, he asks for a growing deeper deeper relationship, a full experience of God. Wouldn't it be beautiful if, as we face problems, that these could be moments that turn us toward God, where we seek him. Verse 10, where we pray as David does, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. Will we be driven this year to know God more? know God more such that knowing him would be enough? That we would long to know him? In fact, that we would be dissatisfied of wherever we are in our relationship with God at the moment? I know many of us are. But if you want to know God better, 
don't take that as a sign that you are not one of his people. In fact, the very opposite. His people long to know him better. Take it as evidence that God has put his spirit in you, that he's working his word in you to know and love him better. And that will involve his word and his spirit as we see there in verse 10. We need his word, his teaching, verse 10. We need understanding. But that in itself is not enough. What else do we need? We need his spirit. Because never just our understanding that's sufficient. We need God's spirit to be at work supernaturally in our lives to lead us, to assure us. And then as we face problems, as things don't go the way we expect them to this year in our lives, we can say with David, verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please stand as